let me introduce you to inspiring entrepreneurs. Hi there, my name is Ben Gothard. My mission is to interview incredible entrepreneurs who are changing the world and present their stories to you, unscripted and unedited. From billionaires to Forbes 30 under 30 recipients to New York Times best-selling authors and much, much more, these people are living proof that nothing is impossible. Join me on this journey to learn from their experiences and become the person you're meant to be. Welcome to the Project Egg Show every morning at 8 a.m. Central. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Project Egg Show. Today, we're still in Austin. Yeah. And we are still in my sister's office. So shout out to you, Amy. Totally rock. Thank you again for lending space to the show. Now, today, we have the honor of speaking with Adam Charles Dunn, a gentleman who is a serial entrepreneur in the cannabis space, as well as the host of his own weekly live podcast, which is just totally epic. I love the fact that we can do live podcasts now today, called The Adam Dunn Show. So, without any further ado, Adam, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, man. Glad to be here. Oh, the pleasure is totally mine. Thank you so much. Uh, you ready to jump right in? Yeah, yeah, ready to go for it anytime. Sweet. That's what, that's what you got to do. You know, you got to just jump in at first. That's the first rule of entrepreneurship right there. Yeah, it is. So, first question for you is what is your story? Oh, shit. Yeah, this is a rough one. This is like when people ask you where you're from, and I, I go, well, do you mean where I was born or where I live? Because it's a whole different story. But uh, yeah, as far as my uh, my career in, in cannabis and uh, and the road to it, it was uh, started super young, uh, as, as you should in the cannabis sphere, sphere right? Uh, but, uh, you know, it's one of those things where I was born in, I was born in 1969, in uh we'll go way back we'll go all the way back to the beginning no, but i was born in 69 in woodstock not at woodstock but in woodstock and uh so pretty much my entire life has been based around cannabis like my mom's friends everybody in her in her in her sphere uh were uh, you know definitely definitely imbibing in the in, in in cannabis when i was young some of my first memories as far as smells and 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 textures and things was was cannabis you know like just to be able to walk in the room and everybody's smoking some you know afghani hash or something and then later on in my life to be able to identify that smell like oh yeah i know that smell that's that smell that was at my friend's my mom's friend's house you know so everything like kind of without knowing it subconsciously i was sort of getting groomed for the industry that didn't exist at that time um so fast forward to uh after graduation i went to uh Went to Australia when I was like uh, 17, 17, turning 18. Like I literally just graduated high school. And uh, Australia at the time was like literally Crocodile Dundee was like the hottest movie at the time, you know, late 80s. Uh, and and so because there was no internet really then also, it was like 
a real adventure. You know, I went down there for about 11 months. I worked for a, a film crew down there doing catering. So I was kind of like right out of the gate from, from high school, like literally on the plane the next day, the next day on the movie set, starting to, you know, take care of like film crews. And so it kind of gave me right away that whole like, uh, you know, just got to go for it kind of deal. And after, after 11 months there, I came back to America and then realized like late eighties in America sucked. It was like, I don't want to be here. This place is, especially as a cannabis person, cause I'm living in, I was at the, in Florida at the time and you know, cops just came on TV and it was just like, that thing was like, everything was changing. You know what I mean? It was like, all of a sudden, you know, that whole Reagan thing had kind of that trickle down economy was not working. You know what I mean? So as a, I was still young, young and ready to roll. And I had an option, I had a, friend I was working on boats at the time and so somebody said hey you want to do a, a transatlantic and so sure did a transatlantic it was 11 days at sea 21 day total trip I got paid 100 bucks a day so in my mind as a as a you know 19 year old at the time I was like this is the deal right here you get paid to travel you know you get to go to these beautiful places you can't spend your money on the water so I had this whole like you know, theory in my mind like this is going to be my thing but I also am, you know, from New York originally, and I don't know if you've ever been on boats like that and working, but it's it's literally like you sleep six hours maximum the entire trip. You might only get four, but usually it's six on, six off, six on, six off, six on, six off. So after 21 days of that, I kind of got a little tired of it. And I was like, you know what, maybe this is not my future. Maybe the traveling is cool and the getting to the cool places is cool, but the, the lifestyle was rough, you know what I mean? So uh, I managed to get myself close enough uh, to Amsterdam and saw like a ferry at one point when I was, you know, uh, after a long, crazy trip uh, with the boat for inside the Mediterranean. And I saw, I saw this option to go to Amsterdam. And so I jumped on a ferry, went to Amsterdam, and then I realized the moment that I landed there that that was my that was my place. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I um, my name's Adam, Amsterdam. If you shorten it, it's Adam. So everywhere I went, I saw my name, and I was like, "Oh, this is it. This is my literally my town. Like this is Adam's town, right?" So I proceeded to to went back to America, sold everything that I owned, and at the time it wasn't that much. It was like an old car and. A snowboard like before anybody had a snowboard <laughs> like a really nice snowboard you know so it was like things like and I had a phototron actually and the phototron was for growing weed but I had one which actually kind of melted and I had to get it so I got two new ones instead of my money back and so I just was like here two phototrons a, a snowboard boom boom managed to put to pull together maybe like close to a grand or something like that not much but that's all I needed you know what I mean and I, I knew after being there for a couple of weeks, I knew that Queen's Day, which is the 30th of uh, April, was the day to be there because the 30th of April is is like a crazy day that everybody kept asking me if I'd been there. And I was like, no, got here in September, you know? So they were like, oh, you gotta be here for that. So I managed to get back on April 22nd, which was a week before that, buy some weed, roll some joints because they have, the whole thing was it's one day of the year that you're allowed to sell whatever you want. So people sell joints on the street, they sell clones, they sell anything, right? So I was like, all right, this is the, I, I can, I can work with this, you know? So I had a genius idea to roll tulip joints 
because if you've ever seen a tulip joint, it's basically two papers back to back in a sort of triangle shape. You fill it up with weed and wrap it and flip it back up and it looks like a tulip. So I'm thinking to myself as a, as a young, like, well, I'm in Holland, I'm rolling tulip joints. I'm going to kill it. Right. So I managed to, I managed to sell out in like 10 minutes. And I was like, wow, dude, this is really amazing. I'm just sold like, you know, it wasn't even that much. I maybe made a couple hundred bucks, but the thing is, a guy walks up to me and he says, hey, you know that everybody's just buying your joints because it's pure with no tobacco in it. They're breaking them up and they're rolling like 10 tobacco joints and selling those for five bucks each. So they're actually making money off of my money. Like I literally thought I was killing it, but then people were making more money buying one of mine than I was selling 10 because their profits were so much higher because they mixed it up with tobacco. And I was such a, not like for me, tobacco is not a, even any option, you know? So, so I was happy with what I did, but I realized later like, ah, that's, that, those guys actually did better than I did, you know? So uh, that was my, literally my first little adventure there. Then I also, what was also funny about that whole trip is before I left, I had a friend who was, who was, um, he was bootlegging, t-shirts for concerts and so before i left i grabbed 200 rolling stone t-shirts and stuffed them in a bag so i had no clothes hardly just a few pairs of clothes but i had a shitload of rolling stone t-shirts <laughs> I, I figured that's the most universal band at the, in the world right so i'm like well it was steel wheels tour right so it's a steel wheels tour and i had these really cheesy like overly done portraits and stuff that were like so thick you could barely wear them you know what I mean as far as shirt but cheesy as hell but I managed to sell over the course of about two months or three months I would go down to the local market and I would sell like 10 at a time to this one guy and he would you know be like all right kid come on back next week I'd be I'd sell like you know a few t-shirts here and and the thing about Amsterdam at the time is my rent was 90 it was 190 guilders at the moment and I had a whole floor and 190 guilders is $90. So my rent was $90 a month for an entire floor in Amsterdam in an, in an apartment, right? So I pretty much like knew that that was, at that time of my life, I was like, I could live off of returning plastic bottles <laughs> to, the, to the store <laughs> and hustle in my t-shirts, right? So I really started off at the complete bottom of the barrel but at the same time happy as hell like I was that's all I needed you know what I mean that's all I wanted was a place I could ride my bike and not have to worry about car insurance and not have to worry about all this bullshit that you had in the states you know so so at that time which was 1989 that was like pure heaven for me at that point and then uh and then from that point on I pretty much uh uh got a job at the hash museum which is owned by Sensi Seeds, which is owned by a guy named by the name of Ben Dronkers, who's literally a legend in the cannabis world now. He's he's the guy who backed almost every other up and coming person who's tried to make it in this industry. And uh, he started a company called Hemp Flax, which is the kind of the original guys working on the whole hemp farming. And so I got my, you know, I got my whole uh, sort of basis of my career working for those guys because i realized at that point like seeds and hemp that's where you want to go you know what i mean and nowadays it took that was in 1990 so you can imagine now it's 2019 so we're looking at you know 30 years almost 30 years ago people you know i was on that like hey 
this hemp stuff. And I already knew that I already had Jack Harris book. I already knew hemp was the shit, but being in Amsterdam, I could kind of feel the energy of like, this is where this stuff could really happen. You know, this is like, this is the place. This is like fucking ground zero of, of, of cannabis. And, uh, from that point on, I, you know, I, I pretty much went full steam from 1991 till, till today, you know, and that's, that's how you have to, you have to roll, you have to just keep moving forward. So let's talk a little bit about, let's talk a lot of it about um, your different businesses and that inspiration, like, like at that point, you know, what that led to as far as your own businesses. Okay, so 1993, uh, in, let's say, around February, I was asked, I pretty much at that point had been working for Sensi Seeds for about four, for almost four years, about three and a half years. And uh, the, uh, they, they were converting the museum at that time from the Hash Museum into the, ha- to the Hemp and marijuana museum or yeah the hemp and cannabis museum after that which was a little more on point because in the beginning it was more about smuggling and, and kind of like more the clandestine side of cannabis but then uh chris conrad who was a co-author to jack Harris book came over to amsterdam and curated that museum and changed the whole format of it and so at that moment in time i could tell that that was the the, the direction and so i i uh I had basically at that point, me and another guy who started working for Sensi a few years after me, uh, we kind of, we kind of, people kept telling us we should hang out and we hadn't, we never really did. And so when we did finally, we realized that we both had the same ideas when it came to, to hemp. We realized that hemp was the, what we needed to, to focus on. And there wasn't any hemp products to speak of except for one company um called stonedware and they had like a jean a jean sort of shirt like a like almost like a cowboy shirt with button ups and it said stonedware and it was oh they were a little bit small on their sizing but it was but it was still a good good product it was decent you know it's made in china you know i remember i don't know who was ever behind it but it was definitely one of those products it was like the first one that came out that you were like okay that's a real hemp product i could see it it's not just to talk about it so we were selling them like hotcakes out of the out of sensi and so him and i were like we got to open up a hemp store like a real hemp store so we so we I had already quit at that time and I was working. I just, at that point was just growing cannabis. Like I quit working for those guys, was working on a bigger projects, wanted to, because when I worked at Sensi Seeds, they were a little bit nervous about you growing cannabis because they didn't want you to get in trouble. Cause if you got in trouble, it might come back on the company. So I really wanted to grow more than just a couple plants at the museum. And so I'd taken on a job with uh, some, some guys who owned coffee shops and we were growing some to scale. So I was kind of like doing my own thing. But him and I were like, no, this is this is this sort of should happen. So we decided uh, uh, that we wanted to do, to do something like in the in the in the hemp sphere. And then at that moment, Chris Conrad asked us if we wanted to uh, host the Cannabis Cup, and we were like, oh yes, the Cannabis Cup. So because the Cannabis Cup was very romanticized, I think, in many people, especially at that time, because it had already been going on for five years, but it wasn't really an event. It was more of a of a of a an article being written in High Times by uh, Steve Hager, the 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 editor at the time. And what he would do is he would bring over the uh, 
the Freedom Fighter of the Year, and they would have a little dinner, and everybody would get together and sort of pick out the best weed at the dinner, you know? So it was really private. It didn't really, it wasn't what you thought, you know? And so we, at being like, you know, in our minds, we're like, whoa, High Times wants us to do this. Like, it was really, a, like, at that point in time, it was like, like we were in outer space or something. Because so I was like, you mean we're going to be in the magazine? Like, it was just tripping us out, you know what I mean? Because we were 20, I was like, I think I was 24 at the time. Uh, and so it was kind of like, oh, this is, this is pretty, this is going to be big, right? So we Stepping decided. up to the big leagues. Yeah, so we decided at that moment that we needed to open up a space to host the cup because we just didn't really know what to do. We didn't know if we should do, you know, it wasn't like there was no, no roadmap at that point. It was literally like, Hey, you guys want to organize the cup? We're like, sure. What's that? You know, how do we do it? Just do it. Right. And at that point, what they were hoping we were going to do was organize a dinner and have the same format. And I was like, well, I have about 200 people that want to show up to this thing. You know what I mean? So it's not going to be like a normal dinner. So we got to think about how we're going to place this thing in a better way. Because every single person that I talked to was like, cannabis cup, I want to go. You know what I mean? So we're like, hey, this could be something. So what we did, which is interesting because it's still to this day, the format that they kind of follow is they, they didn't have uh, they didn't have a framework that made any sense. What they had was a hodgepodge of people coming. So they had basically coffee shop owners, seed, seed, shop, seed company owners, and random people as so-called judges. And then no real format, format of how they're going to judge it. Pretty much like one year they could do this, one year they could do that. They didn't really know what they were doing. So we were like, no, we have to separate the, um, the coffee shops from the seed companies because if you bring the public in, the public, of course, can go to the coffee shops. It's just the normal thing. Go in the coffee shops, do like a coffee shop crawl, right? Go in, you know, stamp your book, make sure you, okay, you came in, do your judging, go to the next shop. You know, it gives you an adventure and it gives you a reason to go inside of Amsterdam and go from this shop to this shop. To this shop. So, um, so we, we signed up, I think it was about 11 or 12 shops. It was very difficult, even though there was at that point in time, there was about 450 shops. Um, High Times didn't have a really great reputation even back then, um, as far as like, you know, I think they had already burned bridges here and there with certain people. And we didn't know that. So we kind of rolled in as like the, the, the representatives of High Times and people like kicked us out of their store, told us to go fuck ourselves. You know, we, we already kind of got that backlash of like, hey, you fucking Americans, who do you think you are? You know, telling me to go, you're coming here to tell me, you know, it was very much like, okay, sorry guys. Didn't know we were offending anybody, right? But we did manage to get like the greenhouse and we managed to get a lot of the shops that are still to this day in, in the contest, right? And so we we made a book, you know, we printed a book, made a map, uh, got, you know, did everything we could between February and, and uh, November. So we had a very short amount of time. And between February and July, we didn't even have a space. July 1st, we, we found a space and uh, we named that space Cannabis in Amsterdam, right? So the acronym would be CIA. So we, our first place is called the CIA. It's in downtown Amsterdam. We took the, we took the picture. We basically made a sign. They had a sign out front, like a sign, sign box. So we hand, hand drew the CIA logo, but we put a joint in the, in the bird's mouth, right? So it's like eagle, <laughs> sideways eagle with a joint hanging out of its mouth, right? And uh, it's on the second floor. So it's not a real storefront but it's huge. It's about three, 
It's about 30,000 square feet. So it's a humongous place. It's multiple floors. Um, oh, and actually, sorry, no, it's a little smaller. It's probably about five. It's probably about more like, like 10,000 square feet. But the thing is, it, it got bigger. It was 10,000 to begin with. And then because our landlord, the way the buildings are in Amsterdam, they're, even though it looks like they're separate buildings, they're all interconnected inside sometimes. Well, not all of them, but a lot of them are because they, for tax reasons, they tax you by the width of your house, you know? So people would have a skinny house, but they'd actually have three houses. And when you looked at it from the front, you pay the tax on the skinny part, and then you actually own the entire, you know, thing. That's, so we had one of those crazy houses where it just was like, people came in and were like, this is, they immediately thought we were squatting it and it was for free because it was too big to be a normal thing. But we were paying pretty high rent. Um, under the guys that this was going to be the biggest success in our life, right? We're like, oh yeah, we'll take the most most expensive rent on a dilapidated place that needed a lot of work, right? So, but we needed the space because we figured, okay, we're going to have hundreds of people. Let's get something serious, right? So we had this very unique, weird space, and uh, we managed to you know we put grow rooms in there, like for, on show, so people could see how grow rooms worked. We like broke it down. We put a map on the wall. So in a way, I tell people, like, I kind of invented weed maps before weed maps, right? But we had a big map on the wall, and we showed everybody where to buy weed with little pins, and we would call down to the store. As, after the people left our shop, we would call down and say, hey, there's a couple from Ohio coming in. They really like edibles. Her, her name is Sally. His name is Fred. Take care of them. And when they get down there, they already kind of had it. Like, hey, what's going on, Fred? It was like, cheers. You know, they walked in. Everybody took care of them. Then they would come back to our store and say, man, that was great. We got extra special service because of you, you know. So we created that, that loop. And I remember at that time talking to the Dutch guys who owned the shop and they'd say, why are you doing this? And I was like, because we're trying to network with you and make this, make this. And they're like, what is networking, right? And it was just like the whole like, it's us working with you and you sending people to us. So we would like leave a, a little card holder at their shop with our cards in it and so we were, the idea was hey when people come to, when people come in and you're they're looking for some somebody to show them where to go you send them to us you know and so it was very it was kind of hard on that side but it, it did work with at least two or three of the stores or, the, or the, uh, the coffee shops where people really understood how it worked and all of a sudden we start to see business people coming because our shop was hard to find which kept it uh, you had to go upstairs, which is, I mean, I wouldn't even go into my own store. It was like, so you want me to walk upstairs <laughs> at the CIA in Amsterdam? You're out of your mind. You know what I mean? Especially when you're all high or on mushrooms or something. It's like, and many people told me that they said, you know, I got to your store, but I didn't go in. I was a little too scared. You know what I mean? And I was like, <laughs> hey, that's the flavor right there. So we ended up doing the, so we ended up organizing the cup. It actually went down. We had about, we had like, I think we had like, uh, so we had Sebastian Bach as one of the celebrity judges and, you know, um, um, Paul Krasner, uh, author Paul Krasner, which was pretty awesome. Um, Gatewood Gabbreth, which was the guy who was running for governor of uh, Kentucky at the time and was a great, he was a really, really good speaker. So, so we had a pretty interesting star studded for cannabis event at the time. And uh, what happened was that year there was, I think, 50 people from America bought tickets for $200 each, right? So they got $10,000. We didn't see a dime of that $10,000, by the way, because that's how high times rolls. It's one of those things where we literally had to like pry money out of them to get paid back because in the end we, we realized like they saw us as a threat because we did such a good job 
of what we were doing that we created something out of nothing right and it was like literally i watched the we saw everybody's like hit like things turning over where they were like wait a minute this could actually be something and it went from 50 people from out of from america about 100 120 people from europe so we're looking at like about a 200 person party the first year everybody got to know everybody those same 200 people showed up for the next 10 years because they had such a good time that year but what happened is high times the next year there was 850 people so it went from from about you know 50 from america to like 500 from america and then it started to grow exponentially and it went up to about 3000 the year after that so it was on a really it was on a tear at that point you know but at the same time we had nothing to do with it after that first year because they were very protective because they flew lawyers over and this is where we started to start to see the reality we were like okay so we had a really good event like I said, we had to pry money out of them just to get even back to even. So we didn't make any money. It wasn't a moneymaker for us at all. But it turned into a money-making machine that to this day is, is, is insane because now there's like, there's a, a cannabis cup in every, every state almost that's legal. There's one in Michigan coming up soon. There's a couple in Southern California. There's a NorCal cup. You know, they're, they're just, they keep growing exponentially. And I, you know, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that we put it together, but I'm a little bit chuffed at the idea that we, we were kicked literally like the next year, we weren't even getting free anything. We didn't even get a free booth. We had to like pay for our own booths, even though we helped organize the very first one. So it was kind of one of those learning curves in the, in the, again, where you were like, okay, even at that time, high times to us became corporate. You know what I mean? We saw that they, we were like, Hey, they're acting like the guys we're trying to fight against. You know, we're an anti-corporation kind of mentality here. We are creating this beautiful thing for them. And they flew lawyers over and sat us down and told us that we had, you know, pretty much nothing to stand on. And that because we had printed a book and we had put the words high times cannabis cup on the book and they're a magazine, that they could just sue us for everything that we had. You know what I mean? So it was kind of like one of those, wow. So because we use your name in a, on a piece of paper as advertising for an event that is actually their event, you know, it was a little bit, it was a little bit weird, but it was like, okay, so something's real here. If they're sending lawyers over and, they, and it was like four lawyers from New York sitting down with, with three guys and I had wearing a tie dye and long hair at the time and like, my other my, my partner's from San Diego and went to school for uh, for real estate. So he was at the perfect time, 1989, 90, when everything crashed. And so he pretty much realized that that was not not worth going into. But uh, he still had a business mind, you know. So, and then my other partner at the time, Dion, who was like uh, an extreme activist, like he he was ready to like throw himself on the sword at any given moment. You know, he didn't he anything anything for cannabis so so we were just like hey we're just about we're only about the uh oh hey we lost your video there you go i think here i am let me just get I'm gonna, uh, it's because i'm gonna run out of power if i don't pay attention <laughs> here i am <laughs> jibber jabber but anyway we uh there we go so then uh at that point in time we realized we had created something interesting um but it was kind of already out of our hands and then CIA lasted about two years. And in those two years, we met every single cannabis uh, activist, every cannabis uh, legend, you know, Ed Rosenthal, Jack Herr, all the big ones. And, you know, Woody Harrelson at the time, like people, 
Cypress Hill on their first album coming through. You know, we, we pretty much were always there. And what I explained to people was that can't like Amsterdam in the early nineties was the only place you could go and experience that the freedom that, that now is, is, is enveloping the entire planet. Right. So I got to experience it as a, as a young guy. And now I'm getting to experience it again as an older guy, but at the same time, it's the same story, right? It doesn't matter. The story repeats itself over and over and over again. And with cannabis as the sort of the, 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 the carrot and the fuel and the whatever it is that makes people go, it's, it's actually gone above and beyond what I could even imagine. But at the time, I can just, I can see the same patterns, you know, like people don't get it. They think it's, a, they think it's always a good thing for legalization and, and, and it is, but it's also becomes a commodity and a commodity based uh, thing is not necessarily as exciting as when a commodity was like, hey, I can grow in a closet in my house and make enough money to go on vacation twice a year to Amsterdam, of course, and spend all my money. Whereas those same people can't barely afford to, to even keep the lights on because cannabis is now worthless compared to what it was in the early 90s. It was worth about six to ten thousand dollars depending on where you were when you, you know people could pull up nine thousand dollars a pound for a good kush in 1998 97 you know so it was like compared to now it's maybe uh 1500 or you know 1200 or something like that so you look at the the reality of how this industry has grown and bubbled and popped for some people and other people are just seeing it start and thinking that it's not going to pop and you're like no no it's all going to pop doesn't matter what it is there's just too many people doing the same thing and whether it's cannabis cbd products um you know it's it's until we get to the point of actually growing industrial hemp which is about right around the corner because what we're growing is not industrial hemp we're growing still growing like high cannabinoid cannabis and just using it in different ways it's either going to be used for oil or it's going to be used for this or it's going to be used for that but when we go on scale, which we, which people are talking about, but not, I haven't, I mean, once you see thousands and thousands and thousands of acres of, of, of properly grown uh, industrial hemp, whether or not it has CBD or not is, isn't even the thing. It's the actual like tonnage of stock and herd and all these other things. Then we're going to see an industry grow at the rate that it's going to grow in a sense where obviously small players can't get involved because it's going to be, you know, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars entry fee because you're looking at a giant industrial sized pro projects, but you're also going to see the ability to use hemp the way it should be used, which is, you know, replacing plastic bottles, replace, doing, doing the things that are actually like more useful because right now what's happening is we're, we're creating more trash to package hemp because we're scared of it or to package cannabis because we're scared and we want to make it or we want to hype it up and make it more more than it is which is disgusting because it's like no we're, we're here we shouldn't be here creating more trash we should be here uh, addressing the trash and using hemp in a sense to 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 do that because we should be able to make biodegradable plastic that makes us feel better so when we do throw it out we know that it's not going to sit there in the, in the alleyway or in a trash heap or wherever for the next thousand years to smoke a one joint or a, or a or one gummy or something. And so we've created this kind of like dichotomy where I'm like, okay, we're past the point. Like now, now black market cannabis is actually more eco-friendly than 
than recreational or 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 uh, medical because when you buy when you buy some weed from somebody it comes in a little sandwich bag right and that sandwich bag as bad as it is is way better than five other containers with a big giant cardboard box around it and and some you know security five different security measures that are unnecessary in the first place because we're talking about something that has never killed anybody in, in on the planet you know so we're so we're, we're you know we're 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 uh we're growing as an industry but at the same time we're we're also moving up a bit too fast in my opinion so How's that for a long-winded answer, right? <laughs> well, I, I love long-winded answers. They're <laughs> highly encouraged on the show. Yeah, um, sure. So, so that's, that's a really interesting point you just made about we're moving in the right direction, but we're moving too fast. Yeah, for sure. Um, because right now what's happening is everybody's jumping on the same bandwagon and it's getting, it's, it's almost, it's, as a as a as a guy who's been in the industry for a long time, it's depressing to see us miss the boat on some things because we're creating problems because of our success. You know what I mean? It's a victim of our own success. So when you have, uh, you know, when you have a situation where your your shop is doing great and you're following all the rules a lot of those rules are made by people who haven't really thought thought it through because they're just trying to basically either make it more complicated for the people to, so more people get out of the industry so that they can get like narrow it down. They just want to narrow the field down to, for instance, like the seven best players and the seven best players should run all hundred shops in some way, shape or form, because it's a lot easier to watch seven people than 40 people that are all doing it, maybe half-assed and, and, you know, and or, which is just the way it is. You know what I mean? At the end of the day, like in Colorado, we got to see it firsthand because in the beginning there was always mom and pa shops and the quality of the cannabis not, wasn't always better, but there was chances of it better being better because you find that little niche, you find those people who actually put extra work into it, grew organically, you know, didn't, didn't use uh, bottled newts and kind of like put their, their heart and soul into it and it would come out in the end. And nowadays uh, those people are gone because they, they, they couldn't keep up with the other guys who would have seven shot, seven grows or eight grows and be able to share all of the expenses. And now all of a sudden it's, it's actually for them, maybe it costs them $150 to produce a pound and it might cost that mom and pa like $600 to produce a pound. And if their market starts to squeeze them out at a certain point, if you're only making a hundred or 200 bucks on a pound, you can't pay the, you can't keep the lights on with that you know what i mean so all of a sudden you'd have to grow a thousand pounds just to get to the point where you were breaking even and even though you're only growing 100 pounds so you're pretty much on a on a downward spiral at that point and that's happened <clears throat> over and over again in every state oregon is overproduced they produced seven years worth of weed last year in one year so how are you gonna get out of that you know what i mean so at the end of the day there's fire sales going on out there there's, you know, there was $500 pounds a year ago, you know, and people didn't think it was going to go that low. And now it's like, that's even like sounding high to some people. You're like, oh, 500, that's pretty good. I'm talking like more like 200 or 300. And you're like, wait a minute. So that's like 50 cents a gram. Like that's getting pretty ridiculous. You know, that's almost where we don't want it to be because as a grower, I don't want to see that. I don't want to see cannabis go down so much in price that people don't care anymore, you know, because the quality of the cannabis is affected immediately by the value, you know? So if the value is not there, you're not going to put that extra energy into it. 
you're not going to take the the extra mile to 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 manicure it better because all of a sudden it costs more to manicure it than it's worth you know what i mean so you're like hey i usually pay my guys 200 dollars a pound to manicure it now it's worth 400 dollars a pound forget about it you know that's half the you're not going to give half your money up so then people just do crappier jobs and, and it just slowly kind of takes away from the, the overall uh you know pick the what we were trying to what we were trying to achieve in the first place was having a super you know, it should be nice to be able to go and pick up great cannabis, but if you've got to go to drive like 50 miles to find the one guy who does it right, that's kind of like now you're again going against the whole, you know, balance of 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 uh, being able to, you know, it's like organic food. You don't want to travel more than 100 miles, or you don't want the you don't want the the food to travel more. You know, you want to keep it all within a certain zone. And with cannabis, same thing. You know, it's like if you, uh, you know, the more handling the more the quality goes down. And that's why when you have your own garden at home and you go and you harvest in, in, in let's say the bedroom or former bedroom, which is now your grow room, and you hang it and dry it in this other former bedroom. And now you take it from there and you smoke it on your, you know, your dining room table. It's the best cannabis in the world, right? Because it's never been handled. It's been, it's been perfect. Whereas if you go to just dispensary, minimum seven seven people have touched it you know minimum maybe more because it's gone from a to b to c to d packaged repackaged unpackaged this finally gets to you it's like it's been manhandled it's just like if your food had been handled that much you'd be like oh i don't know maybe this is as good as it could be you know what i mean so that the idea yeah, that'd be gross <laughs> so that the idea well at the end of the day it's like that's big that's big cannabis you know what i mean so and and they have packing machines now so like maybe less people touch it but once it's been run through a gigantic machine and shook and broken down and, you know, it, it's not the same, you know what I mean? And, and, and so I'm a hundred percent also for any state that goes legal to keep that door open for the home grower, because home growers are the reason why cannabis is where it is. You know what I mean? Like without the original home growers who took the risks and, you know, were there for the, you know, didn't mind. Well, they, everybody minds getting in trouble but at the same time if you are growing cannabis in your any any place that you're doing it it's there every day all day there's no getting out of it you're not you're not doing a quick deal you know what i mean you're actually exposing yourself 24 hours a day if that place gets busted and it's linked to you in any way shape or form you're going to pay the price and so the fact that people have done that for for you know for the last 75 years or 85 years we're at now pretty much is you know testament to the plant and to its power of what it is and the reason why that we do that is because we're all we work for that plant you know what i mean that plant is our boss and we have to take care of it and feed it and you know and the idea that now that it's so-called legal but yet people are still getting arrested for it uh you know i think the main thing is that everybody should grow even if they don't smoke it themselves, just using it as a barter system, for instance, if you have a, if you, if you have somebody who has quite a green thumb and they can grow six plants and they can get, you know, two pounds a plant and get 12 pounds, even if it's only worth a thousand dollars a pound, it's still $12,000 and $12,000 could fix your roof on your house. Right? So if you are like standing around wondering why, you know, you can't pay for your, 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 your basic things, and somebody gives you an option where you can grow a plant and actually make that happen 
I think I'm getting a light, a lot of light there. But sorry. Uh, now I'm getting religious. Oh. <laughs> but at the same time, if you, uh, if you, uh, yeah, I can switch it around a little bit so we're not totally in the glare. If that works, I don't know. Hardly. But uh, yeah, it should be fine. And if you, uh, so if people were more like a little less scared of it, I would have to say, because a lot of people don't, it's like only the people that are truly in, like using it and understanding it are the ones taking the risk to grow it. Yet it's just another plant, right? So at this time of year, if you grow your own food, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna make yourself independent, right? If you grow your own cannabis, even if you don't smoke it, if you're good at growing it and you grow it properly, I guarantee you, you're gonna find somebody in your sphere that will appreciate that. And then on top of that, you might get a better job than you would have if you paid them in cash. And, and the way that things are sliding these days with economically and stuff, it's like, hey why isn't everybody just doing this? Because the minute that everybody does it and it becomes a normal thing is when you take that, that you, you pull that, you pull that energy away from the, from the, 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 from the authorities and from people who want to, who want to keep it down. And all of a sudden it's, it's just another thing. And it's like, like Denver take, it takes a long, it takes years for people to adjust to the smell of cannabis which is its biggest downfall, right? Because it smells so strong. It's so, the better it is, the stronger it smells, right? And so that's always been its downfall from day one is that, you know, the best growers grew the smelliest weed and probably got busted first, right? So that's why a lot of times people wonder where certain strains went. Like, where did all that skunky weed go? Where's all that? You're like, yeah, those are the people that got busted first, right? The guys who, who grew the smelliest, strongest weed that blew the whole neighborhood up. Nowadays, it's the opposite. Now it's like, a badge of, of, of like, if you, it's almost like if you have a shop and you uh, make coffee, even though you're not, you have no customers, you just make a few coffees because you know, people walking by are going to smell that coffee and go, Hey, that place, that, that's, I think I need a coffee. So same with the dispensaries here in Colorado. A lot of them, nobody uses filters on their place. They try to grow the smelliest weed possible. As long as your neighbors don't complain, it's actually, as you're driving down the road and you smell some really good cannabis, you start looking around, see a sign. You're like, I think I'm going to go there. It's just like, it's like anything, you know, follow your nose situation. And it's, it's, this, it's nowadays you can get away with it, but, but it's funny because a lot of those strains have disappeared because of the, the fact that they were exposing themselves to the, to the, to the man at, at all times, you know, but again, like I'll just go to go back to the, to the commodity side. If people again, were using it more as a barter system, um, you'd have a healthier economy on top of everything because it's not about money at that point. It's about, it's about, uh, you know, Hey, I know this lady, she's grows fireweed. <laughs> she needs, uh, she needs, uh, her lawn cut. No problem. We'll come cut it for an ounce of cannabis. Boom. Here, an ounce to her, that ounce, you know, again, might've cost her, it might, if she's, you know, doing it right, it might've cost her like, you know, less like maybe like 200 bucks a pound. So you're talking about like, again, like 50 cents a gram. So, you know, we're talking like $10, $15 worth of weed, which she got $100 worth of work, you know what I mean? And, and that's how that's how we're still able to, uh, I think that's what cannabis kind of kept it alive over the years too, because many people, you know, were cannabis rich, but not maybe can't, not really cash rich, but they could get a lot done, you know? Like I, living in Amsterdam, I used to make hash and I would make little hash, uh, pretty much like little, little, little tokens, you know, and I would flatten it out, laminate around it and cut it. And I bring it out to, to clubs and every club I would go to, I'd, I'd find the doorman, give him one of my little hash chips, you know, 
and uh, they started to fight over them. Like, so I would be like, there'd be a line out the door. I'd have 10 people with me. They'd be like, yo, that kid right there, bring me one, bring me one of your things. You know, I give them a little chip. It might've cost me 10, 15 bucks, but it got 15 people in for free because it was high quality and the guys knew it. They always knew that that was the, you know, you want to get one of those things from that guy. He, he makes, so I just made my own hash. And if you start with good cannabis and you make your own hash, it's going to be the best hash that they've smoked because you used to smoke Moroccan hash and import hash. That was a little bit, you know, maybe one tenth as strong as that. So, so you could, you could do more bartering with cannabis than cash any day of the week. Nowadays, a little harder, you know what I mean? Because now everybody and their uncle has, has vape pens or weed or whatever, but at a certain time, which I was lucky enough to experience, you know, definitely cannabis over cash any day of the week, you know, that's, and I still feel that way too. I feel like if you, I feel better if I have a big bucket of buds or I have a thousand pounds of seeds or whatever. I'm like, that's real. That's real right there. That's even better than cash because I can, I can bank on it. And at the worst case scenario, I can either smoke it or grow it myself. So <laughs> you know, there's never a, it's never a loss there. This is, this is so interesting to me. The idea of like the, the commoditization I think that's the right word uh, of, of cannabis because for so long there's been a push of let's make it legal. It'll be better. Yeah. You know, let's push for that. But now that's getting momentum and it is, we are reaching that, but now, but now I feel like there's this unforeseen backlash almost that, I really wasn't wasn't even aware of it until you brought there's, that up. There's a there's a there's a, there's a co- I mean it's 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 like any it's like anything. There's a bubble, and cannabis's bubble is popping fast, and now it's turning. It's already happened with cannabis. Like right now, uh, California. That's one of the reasons that I didn't move to California is I realized there's just way too many people all thinking they're going to do the exact same thing. Like every single person thinks they're going to be the next big you know, the king of weed there or something. And you're like, sorry, but there's so many people who A, deserve it more than you, but also have put in the work, you know what I mean? And then people don't realize. I had a guy on the phone last night through another friend of mine who didn't understand the history of Kush and was trying to tell me that he had the Kush, that his guys started it. And I'm like, no, I'm sorry, but you're wrong because I'll tell you exactly who started it and where it came from. And, And he was just so it was just a typical Cali guy. And, you know, a lot of Cali people, I mean, they just don't, they, they, they know Kush, but they don't really know the history of it. And so that was part of my, part of what I do on my podcast is I break down all those myths because we're not that far down the rabbit hole, but people are, but his idea was that he wanted to patent this. He wanted to patent this Kush that he had. And I'm like, you can't, first of all, it's, well, a, it's not even yours, right? And I'll tell you that that's for a fact. You may have gotten it back in the late 90s and it might be the cut, which is the one cut that everybody wanted, which is the OG or Kush, which is still around. People still have it. But at the same time, nobody really owns it because, again, it was already out there as a clone. Once it's out as a clone, everybody has it. And you can't, and you can't, I told the guy, I said, if you want to patent it, all you have to do is genetically modify it a little bit. 
uh, and prove that. And if you prove that, you can go and you can patent it. It doesn't matter because no one's going to follow. No one's going to give you a dime for your patent. People are going to take your plant and run with it. And if you want to chase them around and try to go into litigation with them, you're just going to find yourself. You're going to be the loser in the end. You're going to be spending hundreds of thousands of dollars giving it all to lawyers and they're going to get the ones there. The lawyers will make a bunch of money. You'll never get your, you'll never get your day in court. Everyone will just go around you, laugh at you and just move ahead. I said, the best thing you can do is trademark your stuff. And that's really all we are right now. We're at that moment in time where you can trademark cannabis. You can trademark uh, clones. You can do all sorts of, you can do all those things and you can go after people if you want. Again, I don't think it's really worth it. I think at the end of the day, if you have something that's special and other people are using it, they're, they're creating more hype for you. And unless they're directly going to your people and somehow getting your stuff off the shelf and putting theirs on, unless they're doing that, and at that point, yeah, you know, you're down in the trenches at that point. But if it's a situation of, hey, someone's using your strain and hyping it up, and now all of a sudden it's very popular in this part of the country, well, they've actually done probably more work for you than than you see, than you know, you know, and and I've had that over the years because like the first strain that I created was bubblegum, for instance, right? And that was in 1991, before when I was still working at Sensi Seeds. So when I created bubblegum, I didn't realize what I was even doing. I just I had 135 seats that my friend smuggled over from America. They were in a top drawer of our apartment. I was already growing for Sensi Seeds stuff, so I had all the access to their genetics. And I was like thinking to myself, like, what could we really have? But I, when I grew them out, I realized we had something special because it was from outside the gene pool there. It wasn't just a typical Northern Lights skunk times, you know, like North, back in the day, it was pretty much Northern Lights skunk haze and just kind of like every direction in Afghani and just kind of like remixing the same stuff. This was something that was pre-selected outside in America, proven itself because we're a little bit more hard-headed when it came to cannabis because we all smoked pure, right? And so all the people over in Europe mixed with tobacco. So for them, it was more like if it was sweet or if it had some sort of something, it was interesting. We needed something that hit hard, made the whole room stink. You know, we had all, we, we had our own criteria. Our criteria was like, like a little more extreme because we had to have flavor and it had to burn and it had to do all these things. Whereas with them, you could just mix it in some tobacco, the tobacco burned, it made the cannabis burn. So, so, it started off as a real simple sort of differences, but the reality is now America runs the whole gamut of the genetic game because the Americans appreciated it from the day one. And they, because they don't mix it with tobacco, it set us apart. Like the European breeders, there's some guys now, but they're all following us. They're following all the American trends. And, you know, I saw this in the early nineties. And I realized like, Hey, I should just go to America. When every time I'm in America, I'm just going to pick up genetics, bring them back to Holland. And they're going to be unique because they're not part of that thing. And so that was my formula for years. And now <clears throat> it's a, that's the international formula. That's the, that's, that is the reality. Everybody comes to America looking for the latest, greatest, even though it's, it's now become the same problem they had in Holland. In the beginning, it was, because it was so open and because we could trade genetics and, and we could grow them, we, we kind of all did the same things. And now what's happening and the same thing is happening in America. Everybody has these poly hybrids, right? Meaning they have multiple plants in one, but they're all using a lot of the same genetics, a lot of Gorilla Glue, a lot of, you know, there'll be like four plants that have Gorilla Glue in them. There'll be four other plants that have OG in them. There'll be another plants that have sour in them. And they're all 
uh, to a degree overlapping each other. And so what happens is after a while you, you grow better cannabis, but more homogenized and less and less of a range. So uh, when people want to like patent a strain or, you know, they think they got something special, a lot of times they're just on the shoulders of somebody else's work. Just another remix. And they're not, and there's never been, I mean, it's, it's sad to say, but like in this, in the breeder's world, you should, it, it, there should be like a more of a code of ethics. And uh, there's a guy named uh, LeBlanc uh, in Oregon. And uh, that group has put together like a manifesto for, for breeders. And it kind of shows how we could work together and, and, and give kickdowns for, I mean, it, technically it should be. Technically like at the end of the year, if a company takes my bubble gum and uses it to make five different strains, and then those are their most successful strains. It should be more of an honor code. It would be great if I got a $10,000 check at the end of the year because they did that and they made a million dollars and they sent me 10 grand. And I thought, oh, there you go. That's, that's, that would be a great thing because being a guy that's put out a lot of genetics over the years, I might be getting a bunch of residuals. It's like music or something where, you know, you put it out, other people remix it and sometimes they're successful. And it would be nice when they're successful to actually pay the guy who actually gave you the thing to, to mix in the first place. I don't expect it to really happen tomorrow and I don't think it's going to happen for maybe not forever just because people uh, tend to be, unless you do it as a, as a, as an app, then maybe it'll work. Right. You know, like, Hey, download it onto your thing. Did you get your, did you get your check in your, as long as it's a digital way to do it, it might work. But in general uh, it's not, it's not there yet because everybody's trying to get their little piece and, I mean, when I started my seed company in 1993, uh, there was probably like like seven recognized seed com seed companies in the world at the time. You know, like actual recognized ones. It was, you know, Positronics and Dutch Passion, and Nirvana, uh, Sensi Seeds, and you know, uh, 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 there was a few that were defunct that were already out there before. Uh, Super Sativa Seed Clubs, uh, Seed. Seed Bank got bought up by Sensi, so that was kind of their thing. Um, Cultivator's Choice, which was the guys out of California who were the first people to really like, hey, we have a seed company and here you can buy seeds. And that and, and that was about it. So those are the, you know, the, the originals. And then we came in and started CIA and started TH Seeds under CIA. And so we were kind of that second wave. And then you see the wave number three come through and that's like the other like DNA and, and, and Sagar Mother and all these other companies that came about 10 years after we started and did the same formula. And actually were even more successful than we were because they're hyper-focused on just what they did. And, and they were there at the right hype moment when everybody started to go, you know, that's like when flat bill caps became popular and everybody got, everybody thought that they were a, a master grower, right? So all of a sudden it was like, boom, you guys nailed it. Had to give them credit there, but we had already been grinding for 10 years doing the same thing. It's just that we were, 10 years ahead of the game and that's sometimes your problem too you have to it's all about timing it doesn't matter how good your idea is or what you're doing if you're just you know uh too ahead of the time i mean i remember back in the day i used to shoot a lot of videos and i was sitting around one day and i was like you know i got so many cool videos i wish there was a way that i could show people my videos and they could see it and if i just would had a little bit more of a of a savvy tech savvy mind i could have been like Hey, I think I just invented YouTube. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it was like, <laughs> but it was just 
timing, right? Here I am with all these videos and they're all cannabis related videos. So I felt like people would love to see them because I was like filming, uh, you know, rolling giant joints or doing, I was doing all these things that now are just normal. Like even, even I was filming myself doing bong hits going, that's really cool. I got to see myself do a bong hit, right? Nowadays, that's what people do every day. They wake up, they go onto Facebook or YouTube or whatever, and they shoot a video of themselves doing milk shot, milk shots of whatever, right? And so as sad as that is, it's, it's just, it, I, I knew back then because I was a 20 something year old with a video camera and a whole lot of weed. So I knew that that's what I was gonna do. I was gonna film myself smoking weed, right? So nowadays everyone's got a camera in their, in their phone Everybody's got weed. Everybody wants to be the biggest on the block. So the best idea is to wake up every day, show people what you got. And it, it's, it's tiring now because it's like, it's just a stupid formula that you're like, really? I have to watch this guy smoke bongs all day? Like, nah, I'm sorry, click. You know what I mean? It's not, it's, it's past that point. But I understand the hype because I was there. You know what I mean? I was there when, you know, when there was nobody was there. And it was just like, hey, sitting in an empty, empty hall by myself, wondering how to show this off to people. But, you know, again, timing, 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 right? So you just do things at the right moment and, and or you might have a great idea. And if you just either persist at it, it's like seven year cycles. I tell everybody, if you can't, if your shit doesn't pop off in about seven years, you probably are the wrong, either you know, you're really far ahead of your game or you're just not really on something proper, you know, but it, it's, and those cycles get tighter and tighter and tighter. It used to be longer because there was less time, but now if something was really, working here it's going to probably work there and it's going to probably work everywhere you know and you see you see it's much more uh there's more phenomenas now but they're also shorter lived you know so you have to catch well, we, we have a global market too so for sure there's a lot bigger of a of a customer base that you can tap into and you know, I think you're absolutely right about timing in this very interesting way of thinking like seven years, if it hasn't picked up traction, probably try something else. Yeah. Um, and, and I think with technology, that's, that is going to get sped up. That's going to really, really. Oh, we're really moving, we're moving so fast now that, I mean, all those ideas are, and numbers are probably irrelevant because it's, it's, you know, I don't think anybody can predict where we're going to be, you know? And like, the funny thing is, is that now we're in 2000 and we're, gonna, we're coming towards 2020, right? So 2020 is so iconic in many people's minds because like, it doesn't even seem like, like 2000 and two, between 2000 and 2010, for instance, it doesn't feel like very long ago to me, right? It feels like that's only just like a couple of years ago. But the reality is, we're slipping towards, no, that was, you know, like, no, guys, that was 18 years ago. Like, oh, shit, that was 18 years ago. And 2020 is going to be a year, I think, where it all kind of comes into, into focus, which is kind of funny because it's 2020, right? But it really will be the year that everybody, like, puts on their reading glasses for the first time and goes, holy shit, I can see again because we have been in a fog for so long we've literally been you know cannabis has been illegal for 85 years it's about to become federally accepted i, I give it two years max nice. like people say no no it's gonna be five years i'm like no no again because these cycles are coming so fast and 
and and it seems like there's an election every other day, right? Even though we're, we're like, are we really, we're gonna go back into another election cycle? Oh no, this is fucking like, we're, I'm, I'm, I'm freaking out right now. I don't hope that we don't, I thought we were done with this stuff, but we're not, it's coming back to, once again. And what, what thing do you think is gonna be the most like changing of the guards? What's gonna be the one subject? It's gonna be cannabis and hemp because that's what everybody wants. Every state wants it. They want the money. They want to be a part of it. States like Oklahoma are involved. You know, right now we're down to four states that don't have anything. Every other state has some sort of a program, right? Whether it be CBD only, medical, or recreational, right? Texas already has CBD. Like where you are, Texas, CBD only. Are you kidding me? Texas? Okay, so if Texas is already pushed into that envelope, Oklahoma is off the chain right now. People are going nuts over there. There's like more growers registered in Oklahoma than any other state per capita ever, you know what I mean? And so that place is about to just crank out massive amounts of cannabis. I'm not sure about the quality, but they're definitely massive, massive amounts. So if you have that much of a change already and we still have one more year and by, by next year, another 11 states will probably have flipped because it just keeps going quicker. Like now it's to the point where it doesn't even like phase me, right? It's like, oh, really? So Michigan went legal. Okay, cool. It's like, whatever. It's just another state. But the people in those states are going bananas because they just have now this whole new industry that they can tap into, right? So, so in my mind, 2020 is the year that America figures it out. They figure out that they want to go into a cannabis-based economy with everything. And hemp will, will drive so much because right now they just opened the banks. Uh, they've actually told people that no you have to work with these hemp companies these are not cannabis companies these are hemp companies and the minute that everybody gets onto the same page that if you call it hemp and you call it cannabis you're just talking about the same thing it's just varying degrees of the same plant right so we got to get over the stigma of well cannabis is bad and hemp is good it's not true at all actually everybody's on this whole cbd miracle cure right the reality is THC is actually the, the real, it's the real medicine. It's the driver. It's the thing that in the end of the day, they're going to figure out, even though they thought that CBD was a miracle thing. And what it does, I mean, CBD is great for inflammation, which is the number one problem that people have in general medically. So guaranteed across the board, CBD works, no doubt. But without THC, it doesn't work nearly as effectively, right? So what's happened is people have overprocessed cannabis They've taken it straight to isolate, right? Everybody wants isolate these days. And isolate is just 99.96, 99.94, 99.98 CBD. CBD is like the easiest part of the plant to pull out chemically with pentane, for instance, is how we use it, right? So a couple of years ago, they figured out that super saturating cannabis or hemp into pentane will create CBD, it'll fall out. That's how CBD, that's how isolates made. It kind of falls out of the, of the solution, right? And it's the easiest thing to do. Not the easy, well, it's not easy because it takes money and energy, but it's the easiest in the whole formula. Whereas THC is a little more difficult. And usually with things that are of highest, the higher quality, the more difficult they are to, to, to process. Because if it's super easy, that just means that there's going to be tons more of it out there. So next year is going to be a rude awakening for everybody who in the CBD world, because they're going to realize that they came in at this certain number 
and they, they're not going to hit that number. You know what I mean? That number is going to drop dramatically, just like cannabis prices have fallen from, you know, 3000 a pound just a few years ago down to less than a thousand creeping back up. I should say right now because of uh, raids in California, things like that, weather in, you know, in the Midwest, there's going to be some sit, this is going to be one of those shifts this year. We might not even have a corn crop, put it that way. So if we don't have a corn crop this year for most of America, America's about to go into a, a farming crisis where farmers are going to be like ass out. They're going to lose their farms. Trump's not helping it with his trade tariffs. Soybean farmers are about to lose their shit. So if the soybean farmers can't sell their, their, their soybean crops, the corn crops can't go in the ground in time this year. Everybody's growing hemp like maniacs right now. There's thousands and thousands of acres. There was only less than 100,000 acres were grown last year. And this year, that's it, a tenfold, if not more, because there's so many people who, every, everybody and their uncle is growing cannabis and growing hemp right now on a scale that has never been seen before since 19, since probably 1947, you know what I mean? When the last crops were ever grown for the government. But we're growing on a scale. But at the end of the day, all that product has to be processed. And we don't have a single proper decorditator in the country. We have some small ones and we have some, you know, so there's no industrial, that's why there's no industrial hemp being grown. Everybody's growing CBD because they can process it in these smaller labs. And some of these super labs, the biggest labs, there's like, you know, these so-called super labs in, in, in the States you can process about 200,000 uh, pounds, you know, uh, of biomass a day, right? Which is, so then you try to feed that. But the problem is they built them so big, so fast, they can't even feed them. So they're, a lot of them will go out of business before they ever get a chance to get the right amount of material. So it's like, again, the balance of, you know, you don't grow the cannabis or the hemp before you have the processing, but yet we've done that. Nobody's taken that, nobody's on that, that right initiative. There's a few, but not enough. You really, literally we would need, and it has to be local because you can't transport. It's just, you don't want to add that carbon footprint, right? And so the best idea would be to have processing plants all over America uh, waiting for this next year's crop coming in. But in the reality is we're going to have people driving across the entire country to process because the labs are going to be in Oregon or they're going to be, there's big, big labs in North Carolina. There's like labs in really weird spots. And you're like, so where are they going to get all this product? Cause they don't even have close to that in the state that they're in. They can't even turn the machine on. You know, I know small labs, that it costs them $4 million a week to keep just for material costs to keep that running, you know, to, to run $4 million a week worth of product, just, just to, that's like the, the fuel for your product. You still have to make your product. That's a huge overhead. And, and there's thousands of these labs. So imagine thousands of labs trying to get all of this biomass processed. And, and, and the problem is, is that at, right now we're, they're starving. And next year they're going to be buried. You know what I mean? So we're going to be in a, a shift. Week. It's going to change everything. And so here we are with now massive amounts of hemp and massive amounts of cannabis and massive amounts of, of product. And I think at a certain point, the penny's going to drop. Big people are going to come in and say, oh my God, we have to invest $50 million right now into a factory. And I told this to people the last, for the last 10 years, they'd say, what do I, what should I do? What should I do? I was like, well, if you really got money and you want to do it right, you need to invest between 50 and a hundred million dollars into a, into a processing plant 
and be ready for this hemp that's coming. And then nobody would really, they want to see the hemp, but if you're waiting for it to see it on the ground, you don't have enough time to build a, a place. So you really have to think about the, where this stuff's going to go. And I think we're creating our, our own little problem of, again, a victim of our own success, right? Everyone's going to come in, overproduce, and then the, the ball's going to, you know, the, the prices are, are definitely going to go down. Like right now we're looking at about 4,500 for a, a kilo of isolate, right? It was 20,000 two years or three years ago. It was 13,000 just like, a, a, you know, two years ago. And it was like 20,000 three years ago. So if, if that's the direction it's going, and that's when there was barely anything going. There was 100,000 acres grown, but it wasn't all for CBD. A lot of it was grown and not turned into CBD. So, so at the end of the day, you know, we're going to be going from, from famine to feast and, but the, but the feast is going to be too much and we're going to just be, you know, it's going to be a bunch of rotten food everywhere. And that's kind of where, where we're at. We haven't like, no, that people haven't seen that, but what's going to happen after that is that real big money is going to be totally accepting to get into the game because they have been sitting on the sidelines waiting for the feds to say, okay, you can do banking, which they just said recently you can do. So now the banks are open, which means that people are feeling like they can actually work in this, in this sphere because instead of handing somebody a half a million dollars in cash and having that person have to figure out what they can do with that cash to get into their people and into the, into the system and everybody playing games and playing, creating layers and, and, and just like working the system as hard as they can. Now you can go into a bank and you can say, hey, I want to open up a CBD account. And, and not every bank, but a lot of them now are like, oh, okay. The Fed said it's legal. Let's do this. And they're all of a sudden running millions through their bank and much more than they've ever run. Like within one cust one good customer from a, C from a CBD game could probably put more money through a bank than all the other customers combined because at this point in time, it's literally millions and millions of dollars. Like I said, $4 million a week going through a one lab if a bank sees four million a week coming through their their accounts compared to their their you know 400 other people that might put in a couple hundred bucks it's already 10 times the, the the volume so now that bank can actually you know starts to generate real money and all of a sudden everybody's like oh wow this hemp stuff's really good people love money you know people don't necessarily understand hemp so they get scared of it but the reality is Real industrial hemp is going to take over the whole CBD game. It's going to take over everything. And people are going to realize, wow, building materials. Wow, graphene. Wow, there are all these high-tech, amazing things about hemp. It's fireproof, for instance. It can produce, it can, it can store energy. The fact that you can store energy in hemp right now, like a hemp block. You don't have to even do anything to it, right? Literally a hemp block with two electrodes into it, juice it up it'll hold power. Now that is amazing in itself. The fact that you could build a house out of it, put solar panels on the roof, store the power in the walls of your house, just like if it was a Tesla bank and pull energy back off of your own house, which is totally doable and not that crazy and complicated as you think, that alone should turn heads and should flip industries where people are like, wait a minute, so you're saying, that we could get a 3D printer and print a house in 24 hours that could be carbon neutral, actually carbon sequestering, right? It, over the next 100 years, that house would, would pull in tons of CO2 and trap it within its walls and store energy 
why, sign me up, right? And Spireproof, hypoallergenic. It has nothing but positive. Uh, the only negative about it is that we'd have to change laws, change legislature, change building codes because they've designed it all for this toxic uh, building that we do now. Like most buildings, if there's a fire, you don't die from the fire, you die from the chemicals that are in your house that, 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 that burn you out because they, no matter how clean we try to be, okay, we pulled all the asbestos out of the houses because we figured that was a bad idea. We took all the radon out of the houses because we knew that, see, we, we have done nothing but create toxic environments forever. And that's why we wonder, wonder where cancer comes from, we wonder where all these issues come from. It's like probably the food and the building materials that we've had because we've been letting other people tell us what to do and those people aren't doing it for our safety. They're just doing it to get the cheapest uh, and make the most profit, right? When you grow hemp and you use hemp to produce the insulation for your house and you use the hemp, so you have the hemp uh, fiber for your insulation, you have the uh, the hemp herds and you turn that into your hempcrete to build your walls. You know, you, you, you carpet your house in hemp, you use hemp drapes, hemp bedding, you're eating hemp, you know, everything down the line, none of that is toxic or, or bad for you. Almost every one of those items down the road, if you actually looked at the, the alternative is what we're using right now, you'd have like, oh, we're using cotton that was grown with Roundup that you know is leaching back into the soil and and causing cancer and causing other issues and yet you know growing hemp you can grow without any you don't need any of that kind of product because the plant grows so vigorously that at the end of the day you you, you choke out all the other problems because they can't keep up you know so i've seen many many fields of hemp grown without any pesticides um, you know, you have to use some nutrients, of course. There's people who kind of over oversimplify it, say it doesn't need anything. Well, it needs it needs something, but it doesn't necessarily need close to anything that cotton does. Cotton is the worst part of the industry. People don't realize, like it takes so much water to produce such a small amount of cotton, and it uses so much pesticides and so much nutrients, and they have to keep adding, they even add like, uh, you know, radioactive they'll have radioactive residue within their fertilizers because they're they're using it based off of waste materials from factories and using high high salts and things that are just totally not necessary to grow cotton because it's just gotten weaker and weaker over the years and so here we are using the most polluting uh you got the most polluting plant in the world standing next to a plant that can produce you know massive amounts more and higher quality materials. So, you know, it covers so many bases and that's been its problem from day one. The reason why it was made illegal in the first place is because it competed with every industry out there. It competed with pharmaceutical, it competed with the cotton industry, it competed with the chemical industry, like Dow Chemicals made all their money back in the day off of the bleach for paper. That was their big money maker, right? And when hemp came in, needed about a fourth of the amount of bleach to, to whiten it and the paper was a much higher quality. So they were like, well, shit, why do we want to make higher? We don't want to make higher quality, lower amounts of bleach. We want lower quality, higher amounts of bleach. And so we just grow more trees. And, and you know, it takes trees eons to grow and it takes hemp one cycle to grow. So it was just like highly competitive in every way, shape and form and very easy to make illegal because in the end of the day, just throw some racism at it and blow it out of the water, make it, you know, you know, 
mix up people's minds about hemp. So the funny thing is, is that they, they, they never separated it back in the day. And now it's like reality has kicked in where they, they understand, you know, we had a, a plant that was super useful that we pulled out of our system. And it's probably why people are more sick than they've ever been, you know, because when you look at the, when you look at medicine from pre uh, 1938, when cannabis was illegal and medicine after that fact, we changed everything at that point, because before that, it's funny because people call them snake oil salesmen, but the reality was they were mostly hemp oil salesmen. I mean, that was what they were pushing. Those guys that went from town to town and basically cured everybody from everything. Most of those were, were cannabis-based medicines. They were either tinctures, salves, things like that. And, and what you can imagine that, you know, one guy probably had fire, right? It really worked. Another guy probably had shit, just like we have these days, you know, there's so much cannabis out there and there's so much hemp out there that you, you got to be real selective of what you, who's you use because at the end of the day, just the handling and the selection is the most important part. Like if they select the right material to begin with and they handle it really well, you're going to get a great product. But if they do shitty selection and don't give a shit, which a lot of people don't, or don't even understand what good selection is because they're not really cannabis people, but they're, they're, they're really good at marketing, let's say those marketing guys would come in, right? Sell their snake oil, people be rubbing it on, nothing would work. And then they'd be like, ah, bogus. Now that's where the snake oil salesman term came from, right? But the reality was some of those snake oil salesmen were doing a good job. They were bringing in real product and all of a sudden it really did work. Every single buddy, all of a sudden the guy leaves town and people can move their arm that they couldn't move before. And that's a little hurt and this guy's, you know, can eat again. and. Holy shit, he cured everything. He cured that guy from not wanting to eat, cured that guy from eating too much, cured that, you know, all the things that you couldn't imagine. And cannabis can do all that stuff. So I think up until, you know, we were a plant-based medicine uh, country up at that point, and now we're a single molecule chemical-based pharmaceutical country, which does not work. You know what I mean? It works maybe in the short term, but it turns everybody into heroin addicts uh, because everybody's now, you know, done Oxycontins and all this other bullshit. And when I left America in 89, pharmaceuticals, you know, obviously were here, but they weren't, they didn't have a grip on America. When I came back, each time I came back, it was worse and worse. And in Holland, when I was living there, everybody who was a junkie was just taking real heroin. They weren't doing pills. There were some people, but for the most part, you know, heroin was cheap wasn't really a good sales pitch either. Like you didn't walk down the street and see junkies and go, I want to do that. So in a way, by having, them, by having them out there, <clears throat> having them out on the streets, injecting them right in front of you, it turned me, it made me like, oh, I never want to do that, right? <clears throat> Nowadays, it's, you know, it's hidden. Everybody's hiding it, but not, well, not anymore. For the longest time, America was all behind closed doors or it was you know, rock stars or whatever. Nowadays, if you go to like Boston or some of these, you know, some others, you'd be like, holy shit, dude, this is like Night of the Living Dead. It literally looks like Amsterdam did. So you get to see the, the, the rough side of everything, but it's 10 times worse because of the pharmaceutical side of it all. Because even, even the, the, the guy who took the most heroin in Amsterdam, they, they weren't aggressive because they were, they just, all they wanted to do was get better, right? In their own mind, which was take a shot and get better. So they'd be like, you know, nodding out or whatever, but they weren't a threat. But then when you get now the way that America works, 
people are on benzos and people are up and down and everywhere. So they, because of that, you see the ugly side and you see the dangerous side, you know what I mean? Because people don't, and the desperation is here too. So I think with cannabis, that whole 2020 idea that in my opinion, it's also, it's like, it's like the Mayans got it 12 years off. That 2012 thing wasn't really correct. 2020 is when the paradigm shift starts, right? Because people, they get clarity. We become a more plant-based society, right? If you notice right now, Impossible Burgers are taking over the entire fucking food world when it comes to like every single chain, Chipotle and uh, all, you know, Qdoba, Burger King, all of them are now going for this plant-based burger because the people want it right so now all of a sudden that 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 those companies unfortunately impossible burgers use gmo yeast so i'm not a big fan of it but in general the idea that people are now shifting away from from eating meat more or less not completely but giving them an alternative where people can have maybe once a week we'll have a plant-based burger that's going to snowball again so here we are you know Hemp burgers are possible. All that stuff is already out there. I have a friend who makes uh, called Hempway. Hempway is the name of their products, but there's good hemp burgers out there. These kind of things are going to explode into, you know, the numbers are going to become astronomical. So if every single Burger King in America is now offering a plant-based burger, that's a huge, even though I don't, con <laughs> don't condone and I don't really want anything to do with Burger King, McDonald's or any of these fast food places. It's a starting point where, again, that 2020 vision switch is going to happen because all of a sudden people are, are slightly more open to the idea of, of plant-based food or their, you know, organic food these days is now rivaling everything and even beating it out where like, like I eat organic and have my whole, as, as much as I can for almost my whole life. But, but the choices were so slim and far and few between, but now I feel like almost any place I go, I can find it. And even Walmart, I would go to Walmart. You're like, really? Walmart's got organic food, like a whole organic section. And it's because those people, like enough people shop there now for food that they've, you know, complained or, or they've seen the upswing and in, in, in the uptick. Now I don't necessarily believe most of the, the problem with the organic and the, and the marketing and, and behind it is that America can take anything and ruin it. Right. It doesn't matter what, it, if it's a song on the radio, they'll ruin it. Right. You're like, Hey, I like this song. 400 times later after two days, you're like, I don't want to hear the song ever again. They just beat it to the ground. Same thing with organic right now. We're in a phase where everything's organic, but you can't be, everything can't be organic. So you really have to do your due diligence and do your homework. Um, you got to be careful. Uh, what brands you support because there's a lot of people jumping on that bandwagon too, where you're like, Hey, this is really cool. Look at this Kashi cereal. And then you find out it's Kellogg's and you're like, you know, fuck that brand. I'm, I'm, I'm over those guys. I have nothing to do with any corporate, whenever I know that it's a corporate thing, I'm out. You know what I mean? Unless I, unless I know that that company is using that money and putting it back. If it's a company like Dr. Bronner's or something like that, that you're like, Hey, these guys are taking all their money and they're putting it into the best causes and the best things. And they're backing the right people. Those are the kind of the companies I'll support. But when it's uh, you know, Pepsi or Nestle done, you know what I mean? Thank God Starbucks is now uh, merged with Nestle. So I have absolutely hundred percent can't go there anymore because it's one of those things where I justify it in my mind because, well, you know, these guys started off small and now they're huge, but whatever. 
No, they have now merged with Nestle. Nestle now does all their distribution for their non, like in their non in store stuff. So if you go buy anything from Starbucks, you're supporting Nestle, right? You know, Nestle is the company that supports uh, formulas for mothers, which basically ruins kids from day one. So instead of having kids breastfeed, they would rather have you use their Nestle poison, right? And so basically they're from the womb to the tomb fucking you over, you know what I mean? So that's why I don't support people like that. And I try to like, I think that's the thing we need to do in cannabis too. We need to, you need to look at the companies that you're supporting or who they are owned by because we're getting to that point. Now we're getting to when, oh, Coca-Cola owns those guys really because Coca-Cola owns the mother company that owns that company that owns that company. So, you know, for me right now, uh, I think the focus is, uh, I think, and it's interesting too, because I'm turning 50, next year's 2020, it's all kind of full circle. You know, back in 1969 when I was born is when people actually had it figured out. Not totally, but they did. But they didn't have the right message and they didn't know how to present it. And so the hippies were, you know, like, right on right on the right on the money psychedelics fall into that world you know it's also where we're at net right now we just decriminalized mushrooms in colorado they just decriminalized in oakland so it's the, the next wave is a psychedelic wave and that's going to be between the psychedelic wave the acceptance of plant medicine and plant food based products uh and cannabis and hemp being grown on a massive scale all of those things are going to tip America in the right direction, in my opinion. And we're going to slowly see the effects because we're going to see a healthier, healthier uh, population. We're going to see kids actually, hopefully, starting to think a little bit more. I mean, right now, I'm, I'm a little scared for this generation of people right now because I'm like, like any old guy. I don't know about you whippersnapper kids, but, you know, between everybody being obsessed with their phones and with everybody just turning into like unbelievably weak individuals when it comes to like, like I watched Jimmy Kimmel the other night and they showed a clock on the wall and people couldn't read a clock because they're so obsessed with, with looking at their phones. I'm like, are you kidding me? These are college educated people in America that cannot read a clock. So we have to get back to the most basic, obviously we have to get back to the most basic things as a society and if we start with our food and then we work our way with and, and we start with our food and our cannabis and our building materials and our and our basics in life and they all start to become from from safe sources and not from toxic sort of uh, places it's going to be a huge paradigm shift and so that's why i say the mayans were eight years off because if they were close but if you have change in consciousness around the world which is what cannabis does and cannabis is the small conscious changer now you put psychedelics into that formula and you add that into the mix and we're talking about major major changes because what psychedelics did in the 60s was show people that there's a that you know pretty much the main message is that we are all one right we are all connected in this world and that's the problem is that everybody's so disconnected and they think they're in their own world and they think that they that their world is somehow not going to be affected by everybody else's. It's not true. Everybody affects everything. And as a, as a group, as a herd, you know, we are on this planet. Um, we have 
lost the ability to to recognize what the herd's doing right so everybody's like we're, we're literally most people are on the outliers in the herd and just getting picked off because they don't think as one and when you think as one as a group you can do massive things and that's kind of where you know we thought the internet was going to do that it's turned into like fake news and bullshit and just like it's, it's it's a mess you can't get you can't get three layers in it you have to go you have to be so critical thinker you have to be such a critical thinker that you to get online and understand what's real and what's fake is like a full-time job now so if you unless you go to the project egg show that uh, shit's always real it's all true exactly uh, but in reality it's like you, you you go to this point where it's tiring right you get online and you, you're like god is this okay well basically i don't even know if this is true and people are like retweeting and and, and putting out bullshit that they don't understand because they think it's you know oh this they get like knee-jerk mentality so we're not getting we're, we, we're taking this idea that we have this uh global consciousness based through the internet and we're just bastardizing it and turning it into some crappy uh, pay to play sort of platform right but when it comes to cannabis and psychedelics it's it's everything is in your own mind right so the idea is once you figure out in your own mind where you stand or where you are in this world and, and actually that you are part of it and that you can you can adjust and change and make things work the minute we do that things start to happen that's why psychedelics became legal here in Colorado and that's why cannabis became legal here in Colorado because we have a small population of very uh you know, progressive thinking people mixed with a, some not very progressive people because we're also in the Midwest. And luckily, we outnumber them just enough to be able to tip the scales and did it both times. This time it was with 584 votes was the difference on the psychedelic um, decriminalization of mushrooms. And that alone, uh, you know, is like started a little tiny bit of a wave which hit Oakland already. Oakland's already even taken to the next level where uh, all cactuses and ibogaine and, and all other all these other natural substances are also under the decriminalization uh, factor. And so these are only cities too. It's Denver and Oakland, right? It's not the whole state. But what's going to happen is cities all over the country, just like little mushrooms are going to pop up, 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 right? And then nothing's gonna nothing bad's gonna happen right because this is what this is the problem is everybody's always thinking like you you legalize psychedelics there's gonna be people on jumping off buildings and there's gonna be no there's not there's gonna be people actually being able to connect to themselves and the people around them and all of a sudden respecting each other a lot more because it's a proven fact that people who take even one dose of psychedelics have a life-changing experience maybe at that moment and they treat people better and they're more have, they're more empathetic right and empathy is the missing factor in a lot of in a lot of american things because we have this idea that you know it's like tough love or something right we're going to be hard on each other only the strongest survive and it's not really the best way the best way is to work again as a group help each other out, takes a village, all those kind of terms make sense because it is like that. Like you really have to work together. And interestingly enough, nowadays, you know, through gentrification and things like that, you'll see neighborhoods that were terrible now turned into the most cool neighborhoods in town. And then they peak out. That happens a lot in New Orleans. That's yeah, you're in Austin right now. That's like the classic example of, you know, gentrification. And, and, and I'm in Denver right now. This the area that I'm in is called the Rhino District. And this is like mini Williamsburg, right? Like you come here and it's like everyone's on scooters. There's a Shake Shack across the street. It all just happened in the last three years. But it's because 
people want to make their areas better. They want to create a better environment. And, you know, sometimes they go overboard and, and ruin it just like, like Americans do, right? They can't take, can't make it just a little better. You got to make it so much better that it's not better anymore because now the people got to move out because they can't afford to live there anymore because it's so good. You know what I mean? So you got to like, be careful. You don't overdo it. But I think that now in what I was going with before with the whole 2020 and the clarity is that I think now that we're thinking more in a group uh, thought and we're also seeing elections that are working in our favor because people are sick and tired of bullshit because it is turned into such crap now that there's some, there is some clarity. And I think over the next few years with 2020 being the catalyst, I think by 2022, for instance, shit is, is really clear. Cannabis is hundred percent accepted federally. It's, used in you know the banks are dealing with it the banks are doing better than ever people are getting loans again people are buying houses again they're able to take you know they're put put things in their own hands there's going to be you know a surplus instead of being like less cash there's a surplus hopefully depending on how the the, the government you know over regulates it which they usually do over taxes it which they usually do the black market is not going away it's going to be you know i always think my, my motto is black black markets matter right because they really do and at the end of the day they drive a, another side of the industry which you know there's people out there who cannot get in because the the entry level is so high like in new york it's a 200 million dollar entry if you really want to get into the game for real if you want a dispensary and a grow you need 200 million dollars that is unattainable by any average person right a few years ago, it was maybe $2 million. It sounds like a lot of money. Nowadays, it's like in the, in the cannabis world, it is nothing. You're like, oh, how much you got? $2 million? Keep it. Don't even try to fucking get into this industry. It's not worth it. You know, you're going to get gobbled up unless you just want to make a little candy or one little product and you think that's going to be successful somehow in a sea of other products, you probably aren't going to get in. So the cannabis world has bubbled out so hard that it's it's hard for small people to get involved. It's hard for minorities to get involved. It's hard for people who, you know, actually deserve to be in the industry. They can't get in the industry because the, the, the entry level is too high. So now it's, it's literally gone back to old crusty white guys are the only people that can afford to get into uh, the cannabis sphere. And they hang on to finance all these other smaller people to do it because they can't do it. They don't know how to do it. They're, they're, you know, they're back. We're back to the white haired old banker kind of guys. So they bring I'm so I'm so interested in because we've had a lot. I've, I feel like you've given a lot of great predictions in in this episode. Yeah, no, I I'm think, totally the Nostradamus of cannabis a lot. That's my that's my obvious. <laughs> that's my obvious. <laughs> I think it's going to be fascinating to and of course you know well you know you, you of course have to be open to it. But I would love to um, have Maybe. another episode and revisit oh, sure. this. Oh no! And talk about it. I think that'll be awesome. I have been really fortunate enough to do my podcast for the last six years, so I have put it out there in many, many ways. And I'm not going to say I'm always right, but there's definitely a high percentage of of right predictions because it's it's actually not that really much of a prediction as much as an observation. Because again, where it's going, we we kind of do the same cycles over and over again. They just keep getting bigger. And if you can recognize that, you know, there's the biggest problem is, is that it's like everybody gets involved and the, the hype is real and the ability to scale these things is getting there and the numbers are just astronomical. So if people start to calculate and see the words, you know, they start to see the numbers of 100 million or a billion or it's just 
blows their mind. And so they, they're going for it full steam. But the problem is if you're a decimal point off or two, that, that billion turns into a million and a million ain't worth shit. And now you just did all that work for basically get back to zero. You know what I mean? So that's, and that's going to happen. It's not like everybody's going to succeed. Right. So luckily uh, the magic is still there and everybody's still excited. It's going to get less and less people in California are feeling it because the taxes are so high. Plus the competition is fierce. Midwest is going to have a little moment in time where they can sell almost anything because people haven't really been exposed to the higher quality products yet. But, but what happens in the cannabis world is that once you're exposed to a higher quality product, you never go back. Right. So that's, that has been like the, the, the problem of, of the way this thing works is that, you know, say you grow a thousand pounds and you think you're going to get 3000 a pound. And then another guy grows way better and shows everybody that your weed is shit. And now that 3000 is only worth a thousand and you were banking on making a million and now you're down to 300,000 and all of a sudden you still got to sell it. And that other guy's selling it two to one for what you're selling. And now you even have to sell it for 500 because no one's buying because now they, that guy's dropped his prices. And it's just a, again, race to the bottom. This happens in every, every single model. And it happens with cannabis even worse because it's like, you know, you can't sit on it forever. You can't just like store it away and hope that, you know, the perishable. So you have to actually get that out and within a six month time frame, or if it's not if it's anything over six months, it's probably going to be too, too either, unless you stored it with nitrogen and you're really, really on point and you kind of did your homework for the most part, it's not most of the time it's in a warehouse, hot, cold, whatever it's dry, it's wet. There's a million so, things that can go wrong. So, so the, the, I am, so yeah. glad that we have these uh, all all of these predictions, um, and again, I'm very very excited to uh, to yeah, let's, let's speed up. Like, come on, man, let's get together. <laughs> like, let's just month. we can do a six month follow up. Um, we'll have already be in we'll be we'll be in 2020 solidly by uh, a month at that point. So <laughs> at that point, we'll be at the cusp, right? It'll be six months from now. We'll be 15 days into uh, kickoff into 2020. We'll see. We'll see if it's already started. I think it's. I think it is, and I think the funny thing is, is that I've been. I had a. Uh, I did a uh, a, a uh, presentation for the last. I've been doing it for about three years now. And it was, uh, it was uh, basically if anybody wanted me to talk about hemp, you know, I'd come in with my, with my PowerPoint and it was about, and it was called uh, 2020 uh, uh, clear vision in a not too distant future. Right. And it was like, Oh, so I predicted this already like three, four years ago, put this out. And it's, it's like amazing that more people haven't really keyed in on that idea because it's such a obvious Thing that we're coming towards some sort of clarity and, and and I see it as a because I'm a hemp guy and I'm a weed guy if I ever see it in a store if I go to you know I don't go to Whole Foods anymore but back in the day when I did go to Whole Foods and they had their end cap that was all hemp during hemp history week which is actually this week right now that we're in this is hemp history week this is the end of it like today but every first week of June is is a is hemp history week and then uh so when I first noticed it, I think it was about nine years ago. No, maybe a little, yeah, eight years ago, walking through Whole Foods and like the entire end cap was Dr. Bronner's and hemp hearts and all these hemp products that were 
we're all focused on these on these things. So I was like, oh, look at that. You know, they're actually they're starting to happen, you know. And the thing is, because of CBD being a little bit weird right now when it comes to food products, you're not going to see it in the shops yet. But the minute that it does open up, because a lot of people created products and they can't put them on the shelves because, again, they made a big power move thinking that this was going to be the thing. And it will be, but they moved a little bit too fast, right? So like you, right now you're technically not allowed, everything. you're not allowed to put CBD into food, yet people are doing it. Like in Colorado is the one state we can do it, right? So in Colorado we can, but we can't cross state lines technically. So we can't sell to other states to actually put, sell it. So we can do a test runs here. So there's like more CBD infused things in Colorado than anywhere. But uh, once it goes federal, which it will, because again, uh, it will. We're talking about a substance that doesn't doesn't have. Uh, there is not a, there's not a risk factor. It's not like a kind of pharmaceutical where you know they're going to tell you two things it does good and fifty thousand things it does wrong. No, it's the opposite. We have all mostly good, right? The biggest problem that I see with people putting CBD in anything is the fact that uh, I know from a, from being there and standing there over the product that there's not not everything is as, is as clean as it sounds like it is, right? So if you have just slight amounts of THC in all these different products. And it's accumulative, and THC just stays in your system for months, right? It can stay in your system for easily a month. So if you're one of these guys who's like going to trade shows, gobbling up all these CBD products, and not necessarily, you know, using them necessarily. Like the thing about anything is, if you if you want it to work, you got to use it over and over again, like vitamins or something like that, where you might notice it after a month. It's never, you know, with some things like when doing a dab of CBD, and you might then, then you might feel it right away. But when it's a salve or it's a, a very light dose of CBD, the, the, the reality of it actually working like, like a super dose is pretty low. It, but what it will do is it accumulatively work. But the problem is, is if you're working, with, if you're eating a lot of untested products that might have a uh, bit more bit more THC than, than one might think, especially in these truck stops and these places where there's very unregulated, uh, you could bring it to a point where you fail a drug test right so just like poppies can make you fail a drug test for opiates right so imagine with with eating hemp seeds and eating cbd especially and they get fired from the job from that so. yeah and i'm thinking about mostly the truck drivers and things like that because so many truck drivers that's their only option right so they stop at every one of these gas stations there's always a cbd line right at the front of the counter and so if the guy's like, yeah, give me one of them, which is a typical trucker sort of way of living, right? Just eat whatever you can at the truck stop. So all of a sudden they've got, you know, they've had six or eight of these in a week and each one of them was a little bit more THC than you thought. And now that stuff has got that adds up. And all you need is five nanograms to actually fail the test. And for instance, as a smoker and a guy who consumes a lot of cannabis, I'll, I'll have five nanograms in my system every day of the year. I will never not have five. I'll have them for 50 or 100, but it won't affect me because it's already in my system and I've already consumed it a long time ago, but it's there. And so as a person, so I'm seeing that as a maybe big pitfall within the CBD industry where people might start to get nervous about that and they'll have to be much more tested and much more regulated and and you'll have to have thc 100 thc free products to have them on the show so i think it's going to change a little bit because right now people are just like cowboying everything there's there's 
you know, and, and, and the crazy thing is, is the number one thing making money right now, if people want to know what to get into in this industry right now, it's CBD flour and it's CBD smokable flour is the absolute number one money maker right now because of the less amount of processing. You grow it on a plant, you dry it, you sell it, you sell it in a jar, you sell it in a joint, whatever it is, but you don't turn that into oil, spend all that money producing it into turning it into a, a less, more potent product just keep the amount of weight there so if you grow a pound of smokable flour you have a pound of smokable flour it's worth maybe three to four hundred dollars very valuable especially wholesale but when it hits the shop and gets broken down into those ounces it's actually making real money right so right and and the processing makes it way makes it way easier 100 percent. and the fact that you can do it in-house without having to like the problem when you process is a lot of times you give half of that to your to the person who's processing right so you grow a thousand pounds you just turn gate 500 to that guy to process it for you well i cut your that cut your product in half whereas if you take that thousand pounds turn it into smokable flour sold every single gram keep it all to yourself right so that is actually the biggest money maker right now and it's also going to be the catalyst which makes cannabis legal because the fact that you can actually go into any store in Tennessee or Oklahoma or, you know, or Idaho or all these states that are not even like states that don't even have anything or Georgia places that are like, wait a minute, you walk into a store and they've got 15 kinds of smokable flour on the shelf. Do you really think that the authorities have the ability or time or money or energy to test all 15 in that one store plus all the hundred other stores that are doing it? They can't. It's too expensive. It's a hundred dollars a test because they're government, so they're not going to they're not going to give you any kind of deal. They're going to upcharge as much as they can because somebody else is making money on those tests, right? So the idea that <clears throat> any authority in any of these small towns is going to be able to go into any of these shops, test all of those products, and be able to tell them uh, what's what's up, it's 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 a, it's, it's laughable, right? So what's going to happen is the confusion and the amount of time and wasted energy that's going to come into the courts in the next few years is going to tie it all up, drive them insane. They're going to say, you know what, legalize it all, tax it, and let's just get over it. Because right now what we're trying to do is we're taking smokable flour, which is cannabis, which looks like cannabis because it is cannabis. It has just a different cannabinoid profile. This is legal. This is illegal. This has to be highly regulated and be in a shop and be taxed at 39%. This not because this is just a, a novelty item, but yet this novelty item actually works as a medicine because it has CBD in it and CBN and CBG and all these other all these other cannabinoids. So actually, it is working, and so people are buying it not just because they like it, but because they actually feel like they need it. And now they're using it every single day. So this guy in this store, this little podunk store, which has a CBD sign out in front of it, is pulling in you know one hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand dollars a week. And he used to pull in a thousand dollars a week. So all of a sudden he's a hundred times over what he used to be. And he just keeps buying more and more and more. And now he fixes his store up, makes his store look like a real dispensary, just selling this. They're going to go nuts, dude. They're not going to have a clue of how to, how to combat this. There is, it's just like the vape pen changed the game as far as like, are you smoking tobacco? Or are you smoking cannabis? Oh, I'm smoking tobacco. Are they really going to test that? I, no. There are so many things. There are so many things that are that are going to be that are going to be changed. So exactly. So you know, I want to I want to yeah. thank you so much. Um, okay. Sure. For uh, for you know for sharing everything that you have. Um, clear, clearly, we could talk about this for days and days and hey, days. You know, <laughs> like, like I told you at the beginning of the show, I do a I do a long format podcast. So for me, jibber jabbering for hours is a problem. 
I feel sorry for the people maybe who have to listen to me sometimes because I might go, <laughs> I might go off on a tangent and I might not make sense at that moment in time. But I always tell everybody, like I told you earlier, just give me a nugget, get a nugget, get a nugget out of the show. Hopefully you got a few nuggets out of this show. I think we did because we covered a lot in a short amount of time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, um, thank you for letting me just talk my way through the whole thing because that just makes me more comfortable. I love questions, but sometimes I feel like when there's too many questions, they don't get the most out of me because I don't really know where I'm going half the time anyway. I just let it happen. And uh, I feel like, yeah, like I said, we covered some good, good, good ground here. People can listen back later, see if my predictions are correct. I'm sure I got one of them. I'm sure I nailed it. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you again, Adam. I really do appreciate your time. And to everybody who's watching, listening, I want to thank y'all very, very much. If anybody wants to hear the the, uh, Today Show on my uh, podcast, which is at 420 uh, Central Mountain Time here, I'm in Denver. So uh, we have Alki David on the show, and he's the the, uh, billionaire, the Greek billionaire who was busted with the 5,000 plants in St. Kitts. I'm looking forward to interviewing him. So now I'll be on the other side of the, of the, of the coin here. I'll have to control myself and not, and not talk the entire show, but apparently this guy loves to talk too. So listen to that one live today. Otherwise uh, check out the old stuff and obviously uh, check out your old podcast too. How many, how many episodes have you got right now going on? How many so we just, we just published officially. I say we, cause my team, um, 162. Oh, nice, nice. So yeah, uh, it's always amazing. It's amazing while. when you go back later into your library and you're like, I "Can't believe I put out all that content." You know what I mean? So it's been good, on, good on you for 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 keeping the podcast world going. And uh, I'll be on the show anytime you want. Absolutely. Thank, thank you and again to everybody who's listening, watching. Thank you all very much. Your time is very valuable, and I'm very grateful that you choose to share with us today. So thank you very much. And I will see y'all on the next episode.